Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Sometimes people are not eviscerated, so they have these bloat and then slight explosions. Others, like some of the royal mummies and even the non-royal ones, look absolutely beautiful. You look at their faces and you think, oh, he's just asleep. He's going to wake up and talk Mm. to me. Thirty-three centuries had passed since human feet last trod the floor on which we stood. And yet the signs of recent life were around us. A half-filled bowl of mortar, a blackened lamp, the chips of wood left on the floor by a careless carpenter. A hundred years ago, Howard Carter was holding a lantern inside the undisturbed tomb of King Tutankhamun. It was to become the most famous archaeological discovery in the world, ever. More than 3,000 years had passed since any human had set foot inside this room, but Carter had that feeling that no time had passed at all. It was a perfect time capsule in the desert in the Valley of the Kings, which the ancient Egyptians would have been very, very happy to hear because that was what they were going for after all, creating tombs for the pharaohs that would last for all eternity. And at the heart of their efforts to defeat time and survive death were the bodies themselves, the mummies. So today on Patented, a podcast all about the history of invention, I'm going to be looking at the origins of mummification, finding out how the ancient Egyptians found a way to preserve bodies so they would last essentially forever. And my guide today is the very wonderful Salima Ikram, Professor of Egyptology at the American University of Cairo. I'm Dallas Campbell, and this is Patented. to be welcomed today by Salima Ikram, one of Earth's greatest minds, surely. We worked together a long time ago. That we did indeed. Can you remember when it was? It was about more than 10 years ago. Oh, we must have been children at that time. We were both children. Egypt's Lost Cities it was, BBC That's right. One. Funnily enough, we were just, uh, just before we went on, I was singing your praises as oh, yeah? a, a brilliant Egyptologist, a brilliant archaeologist. I really want to talk to you about mummies, if that's okay, because this podcast, you know, it's a science and tech podcast, really. We look at inventions, how things begin. And then suddenly you came into my mind, I'm like, you know, we're fascinated by mummies. I don't know why is it that, you know, since we were kids watching Scooby-Doo, we were fascinated by mummies. So what is it about mummification that intrigues us so much? I think it's when you look at a mummy, when you actually go and see a mummy in a museum, you can really look at the face and it looks like someone who's recognisable. So it's not as if it's dead. It's really someone who's sleeping. And I think that's appealing. And then it sort of transforms time. You are in touch with them. You're in contact with them. This is a recognisable being. Of course, I mean, when you see them all wrapped up, then that takes away from this 
humanity, but it's the whole idea that the ancient Egyptians believed that you could transform the dead and preserve the body because then it would be used again for eternity. And I think that's kind of a cool thing. And it's also freaky. And so when you're a child, it's both things that grab you. It's definitely cool. You should write a book called Cool and Freaky about mummies. Um, (laughs) We do seem to have this obsession with surviving our own death. We tend to see it throughout culture. And it's funny, I did a podcast the other day with this group of people who are trying to freeze themselves at the point oh, of yeah. death. Yeah, really, cryonics is called. Really, really interesting. Across cultures and across this great timeline, there does seem to be this fascination of sort of different ways of doing it. And I suppose even doing this, you know, making television programmes, it's not like surviving one's own death, but it's preserving ourselves in a way, isn't it? And Facebook and photographs. It is. I mean, that's why social media is such a big thing, because you're always writing your autobiography and you're sharing it, and it makes you more real somehow. Yeah. First of all, where does the word mummy come from? <laughs> I was trying to work this out. I was like, oh, I have no idea where the word mummy comes from. Why do we call well, it mummies? First of all, actually, I don't think that everyone knows what a mummy is because there are mummies. People say, oh, the bog body, and then they casually refer to those as mummies. But technically yeah. not because a mummy is an artificially preserved body of a human being or an animal as opposed to the bog doing it for you or ice doing it for you or just the dry heat of the desert doing it for you. So there are some South American cultures that really did something manipulative to preserve your body. And of course, the ancient Egyptians did. So the sort of piltdown man or, you know, bog people we find in bogs or up mountains, they're not mummies? What do we call them? Then? I, mean, I would call them a just preserved, naturally preserved body. Okay. But then I'm a mummy snob. <laughs> Who knew there was such a thing as mummy snobbery? I, I like that. So there's the natural way of preserving a body, which is your body is left in some kind of environment where it doesn't decay. So whether that's right. in a glacier or in an oxygen-free peat bog or some such thing. Okay, before there was like artificial mummification, did people find these and go, wow, that's amazing. I know what we can do. Why don't we try and like recreate that type of thing and do it ourselves? Well, we think that's exactly what happened with the ancient Egyptians because the earliest bodies were buried in sand or desert tafla, which is acts like silica gel. So basically everyone gets desiccated. And, you know, in the British Museum, Jebelain Man won, but he used to be known as Ginger, affectionately. And he was a naturally desiccated body. We think that what happened was that some of these graves became uncovered. And so people saw that they were nicely preserved. And they thought, this is great. But then as time progressed and they had removed the bodies from the desert sand and started to wrap them up or put them into coffins, they saw that they were deteriorating. And that's why they had to come up with a solution so that they would not deteriorate and so that people could basically host their souls for eternity. Do we know kind of how far back in time are we going when we find the first mummies or is that sort of lost forever? Do we not know? Well, I mean, it also depends on how we start defining a mummy. The word mummy is basically from Arabic, from mum or mumia, which is this dark material that you see mummies are coated with. And the Arabs saw this and they thought it was a form of bitumen or asphalt that was be- these people were being covered in. And so that's how the word mummy came about. And so from there, from mum, we went into mumia, and then poor mummies had all kinds of it histories of being scraped off for medicine because bitumen was supposed to be good for you and ground up and powdered mummy 
featured in apothecaries. Yes, that's a whole really interesting world, the sort of 19th century mummy Egypt craze. That's a whole other podcast. Yeah, I mean, the start of it, it's because they were using this black material, which was basically a form of resin. And frankly, until you've done your gas chromatography or mass spectrometry, it just looks like black goo. And it's do your analyses that you know what's in there. And so if you start saying that's when mummies are invented, we're still fooling around with this because recently there were some bits of resin being used in the site of Hierakonpolis at about you know 3200 BC or 3100 BC, which is much earlier than we thought. But they weren't completely mummified. And then very recently, there have been excavations at the site of Jedkare Isesi's Pyramid, which is about 2300 BC, 2200 BC. And that is where there's a body that looks really elaborately wrapped, beautifully prepared, lots of resin being used. And that pushes back when we think mummification was being really formally done by a few hundred years. And can we say it is an Egyptian thing? It's definitely, there weren't other cultures throughout the world that were sort of practicing mummification in this way before Egypt? Not in the way that the Egyptians were doing it. No, this is a yeah. very uniquely Egyptian kind of habit. And specifically, why were they doing it? I mean, we've talked about this idea of surviving death and carrying on. How linked was that idea to the culture of the time? For the ancient Egyptians, death was a transition into a more eternal life. And you had to have a body to make yourselves live for the rest of the time. And so they did. They mummified people. And mummification was basically a transformation. It makes you go from being just a normal human being into a semi-divine individual. It's a metamorphosis. And this semi-divine person can, of course, live forever. And so your body had to be treated in ways and transformed so that it would survive the test of time. Gosh, that's really interesting. Actually, that word you used, you know, metamorphosis, it's almost, you conjure up, of course, this idea of the cocoon, and somehow you kind of emerge in the next life as a wonderful butterfly, perhaps. They have, in fact, for when you're being the idea of being reborn, there are all these rituals that are associated with birth because mm. we're coming out again. And they even have these amulets that are two fingers. And those are the two fingers that like a midwife would use to clear out the mucus from a child's mouth. And so this is the kind of thing that you're, you're doing for the deceased person who's coming out renewed and fresh. Let's go back in time. Let's go all the way back there. And let's say I have shaken off this mortal coil and I'm now dead or I'm about to pass into the next realm, and you're the embalmer. Take us through the process. I'm lying there on a slab. What happens? Okay, so it depends on if you're wealthy or not. So I'm going to give you the high-class version. I'm definitely high-class. I don't want any skimping. No, Thomas, I knew you were high-class. Yes. So the first thing we will do is we will remove your brain in case it rots, and we're not quite sure what it does. So we stick up a pointy thing, a sharp, pointy metal object up your nostril, left one, um, and we poke about and pulverize your brain. And then you take a more flexible tool, also metal, and you sort of whip it around so that you can remove the brain with a hook. It's funny they do, because like when we think of the brain nowadays, we think of that kind of as our most important organ. You know, it's where we are. You know, when we think about ourselves, we kind of think we're about, well, two inches behind my eyes is kind of where I think I am. Was the brain not as revered as it is now? No, it's quite interesting because for them, it was a heart. The heart for them did everything that the brain does. And it makes sense because that's what thumps. Yeah. You can feel yourself being alive 
with your you hold your head only when you have a headache. That's interesting. So yeah, the mechanicalness of the heart gave it its importance. Yeah, and I mean that's also why for the ancient Egyptians the left side was important because that's the heart, and so all lefties were pretty well <laughs> off. And how straight? I had no idea. That's fascinating. Okay, so you've pulverized my brain using a sort of egg whisk yeah. or some kind of tool. I don't want your brain case, your cranium, to implode. So I melt resins, maybe with a little bit of oils and other things, and I pour it into your nostril and I put your head back and sort of mm-hmm. first coat the inside of your cranium and then put more of this resin in so that it holds it and it becomes a bit solid. And Tell heavy. us what this resin is. Is this a kind of tree sap? So, yeah, this is tree sap. And we're trying right now, there's a group of us working to identify more precisely which resins were used because they seem to be frankincense and myrrh, but sometimes there's also maybe things from acacia gum arabic, acacia tree resins and bits of wax mixed in. And then you make little twirl up bits of linen and stick them up your nostrils so that nothing seeps out. So once you've taken care of the head, we move down to the other parts of your body and you make a small cut on your left side, about three inches, maybe four inches max. And this is where the embalmer cunningly inserts his hand and starts to pull out your intestines, your stomach, your liver, and your lungs. And they must have been quite dexterous. And they probably wound up chopping up a little bit of your internal organs because they're not all going to slide out beautifully from three-inch holes. No. And once they were removed, these are treated separately. But basically what happens to them is the same thing that happens to your body, is that they mop up the blood, they wash it with your internal space with palm wine to sort of disinfect, they dry you up, they use alum to seal you from seeping and also to stop any insects getting in there. In taxidermy, people also used to use alum to stop insects from getting in there. Then they dry you out with natron, and natron is this naturally occurring mixture of basically salt and baking soda, which is found in the Wadi Natrun in Egypt. It comes in sort of chunks. It precipitates from these lakes. And then you have to pound it and powder it and grind it so it's good quality for you the very best. And then it's put into little pieces of cloth and it's tied up like party favours. And these are stuffed inside your body cavity to dry you out. And you yourself will be completely buried in kilos and kilos and kilos of this stuff to dry you out. And this whole process is supposed to take about 40 days. And then they will remove you from this natron, dust you off. And then sometimes they say they might have sort of washed you off, but I don't think they want to really wash you because the whole point is dehydration and defatting. And then the last 30 days are spent with giving you a little bit of the seven sacred oils, which restores a little bit of flexibility to the limbs, because otherwise you're so brittle, you would snap off in pieces and they don't want to lose bits. And so flexibility is important in the afterlife. A little bit of flexibility, not too much, otherwise you rehydrate and that's the end of it. And so then they massage you with these oils and while this is being done, incense has to be burnt constantly to keep the flies away because otherwise you'll be maggot ridden. And then the priests are reciting spells while they bandage you very carefully, bit by bit, and put amulets in there. So they're creating a physical protection for your body with these bandages, as well as a metaphysical one through the spells that they are weaving around you and the amulets that they're putting at, you know, key points to protect different parts of your body. And then finally, after this whole thing, which is the whole process is 
supposed to take 70 days, then you are ready to be reborn, as it were, buried and rebirthed. Amazing. Millions dead, a higher proportion of civilian casualties than in the Second World War. America, Britain, Russia and China all involved in a conflict that technically remains active to this day. So why is the Korean War of 1950-53 to 53 called the Forgotten War? The North Koreans and the South Koreans, even today in the 2020s, they're still officially at war. This July, we're dedicating a special series of episodes to finding out what this unique conflict was all about. From the halls of power... I've seen documents in the last week where the British chiefs of staff are telling Clement Attlee this might lead to World War III. This might be a nuclear war. To the battlefront. During the Korean War, the ship fired its guns far more than it ever did in the whole of the Second World War. Because that's what we were doing day in, day out. Join me, James Rogers, throughout July on the Warfare podcast from History Hit as we remember the war the world forgot. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Finally, what happens to our my organs? The canopic jars. Remind me what the canopic jars yes, are. They are also dead. And, you know, think of it, though, the logistics of doing it, because your stomach and your intestines are filled with whatever you've been ingesting. And so it's a bit like what a butcher has to deal with. Yeah. To clean everything out and wash out your organs and then dry them. And then they are also desiccated with natron and oiled and then wrapped into tight little bundles and shoved into canopic jars which are buried with so these you. are some earthenware jars. Mm-hmm. Either stone or earthenware, and sometimes they even have heads of different gods who are protecting your internal organs. Here's the thing with all this. I mean, you, you go into it in such detail, and there's such specific things. Such There is a kind of way of doing this, it seems. But one thing I've learned doing this podcast is when we're talking about invention and innovation, there's always a progressive step. It never starts off with a Boeing 747, you always start off with the Wright brothers and you build up to a Boeing 747. 
did they like test this stuff out first and go, actually, you know, that doesn't work so well. Why don't we try this? Was there any kind of experimenting? Like, how did they know all this stuff would work? There must have been a lot of experimentation and checking things out. I mean, I'd like to have the idea that they had a little lab going. Yeah, exactly. That's it. Like, okay, let's try this resin. Yeah, I, I don't know. We don't have any evidence for this. And very irritatingly, we have no texts that talk about right. the recipes for mummification. Now we're doing all of these analyses in an effort to pass it down. But of course, some of the herbs and spices are fugitive, so we don't really know what they might have been. Yeah. I mean, by studying the mummies, do you see kind of differences in the process that kind of maybe alludes to the fact that there's trial and error or different materials being used or different things happening? Sometimes people are not eviscerated, so they have these bloat and then slight explosions. Some people are completely just covered with this black resinous material, so they just look like large black blobs. But uh, others, like some of the royal mummies and even the non-royal ones, look absolutely beautiful. You look at their faces and you think, oh, he's just asleep. He's going to wake up and talk mm. to me. Just earlier on, you mentioned Herodotus, obviously a famous Roman historian, 5th century, writing about mummification. And just from your point of view, how has our knowledge of sort of mummification evolved? Like, Do we know much more than we ever knew? Or is there more to know about mummification? I think there's quite a lot to know about mummification. And since Herodotus wrote in the 5th century, he gave us quite a lot of details, but as he kept saying, but this is a secret. So we didn't always know what the secret was. But I think now with more chemical analyses, we're coming closer to getting different recipes for mummies. So each family of embalmers would probably have their own mix, which they would pass on. And then this would be improved on or tweaked from generation to generation. And sometimes, of course, they would say, well, you know, do you want the Rolls Royce of mummification? <laughs> that's, yeah, well, that's, yeah, the Waitrose mummification as all the little <laughs> mummification. It's just like going to a funeral home now. You know, do you want yeah. the pine wood box or do you want the oak with yeah. satin lining? You've actually done mummies, haven't you? Haven't you made mummies? Have you? I have. What's your sort of secret recipe? So you've got all this knowledge that you've learned. And just tell us what it's like doing it yourself. Well, I mean, one forgets how absolutely, I excuse the word, visceral the whole process is. Mm. Because I've done my students, sometimes their pets die. So we've done pet cats and things like that. But we once got a sheep. And you definitely think, oh, my God, you know, when you do an apis bull, how much bigger is that going to be? Because you've got all these different stomachs and you have to have a lot of upper body strength, which I do not have. And you realize that you must be working in teams of people trying to manipulate the bodies, pull things out, not be have all the sort of basically the shit in the body come down when you're opening up the intestines. So it's a quite a very physically challenging thing and then trying to get the proportions right. Because if you've just been doing cats and rabbits, you suddenly have to get 10 more times, 20 more times more natron, much more resin, and you need huge vats. So the logistics are very interesting. This is very different from regular sort of taxidermy, anyone who's had their cat stuffed. Oh, yeah, completely. <laughs> but did you do the whole thing with sticking a stick up the nostril of the sheep and pulling out the brain and doing the, the, whole, animals the whole thing? lost their brains because, immersively, they're relatively small, so the Egyptians didn't worry yeah. about them too much. Because also, logistically, I think it would have been more challenging. Yeah. And the Egyptians, they just while we're on the subject of animals, they would also mummify their pets, wouldn't they? Yes, they did. Lovingly. 
So you have these pet mummies that were sometimes buried with the people or if they died afterwards, buried in the courtyard of the tomb and their paintings are on the walls or even sometimes on the coffins with the name of the pet dog or whatever animal it was. And it would be the same process doing your dog as it would be to do Tutankhamun? Well, probably. I mean, maybe sometimes it could be a bit more econobi or sometimes it was deluxe. Queen Isadam Kheb had her gazelle done in a very deluxe way. Nice. Here's a question I've been thinking as well. How many mummies are there out there? Did everyone get mummified or was it just a certain class or a certain group of people, high status people, that would be mummified in ancient Egypt? Because when we think about ancient Egypt, we automatically think of royal Egypt. But it wasn't just kings and queens running around. There were sort of ordinary people there. Would they get mummified? A lot of the ordinary people would get mummified. Most of them could get some form of mummification. And of course, as the population increased and as sort of the classes diversified more, you would get more and more mummies. So there are a huge number of mummies. And at any point, you know, maybe there's six million, four million people in Egypt. So out of that, maybe at least three million would be mummified at any given point. Yeah. So it's it's hard to figure out the demographics of it all. There is something fascinating. That when I was a kid, I used to, like you, I think, I used to love going around museums. And there was a museum in Newcastle upon Tyne called the Hancock Museum, and they had a mummy in it. And I would drag my mum, my mummy, to go to that museum. And I would just sit and look at it. And it is there is something, like you mentioned at the beginning, this idea of seeing the face. You are transported back in time. We think of it being rather superstitious. Oh, they're trying to survive death. But they've actually succeeded, haven't they? They have survived death. They have transcended through time. They've travelled in time. Seeing those faces, there is something quite eerie about it and magical. It is magical. And I mean, for the ancient Egyptians, they probably weren't expecting to be in museums. Mm. But in a way, this is, again, it is doing exactly what they set out to do. They have prayers in their tombs saying, say my name and remember me. Yes. Every time you do say someone's name, it's sort of like um, Tinkerbell and the fairies. You, know, you clap your hands if you believe. So you say the name. And so yeah. the ancient Egyptians just live through that. And so they really have achieved eternity. It's funny, actually, when you, for anyone who's been to the Cairo Museum, well, I haven't been to the new Cairo Museum, but the old Cairo Museum, you go in there and you stand facing the famous death mask of Tutankhamun. There is something about that death mask, but also the fact that we say Tutankhamun all the time because he's so famous. He has survived in oceans of time and, and now lives in our time. And in a way, he has achieved immortality. And I suppose mummification is a way of becoming immortal. Absolutely. And I mean, this is, in fact, the 100th anniversary of the discovery of Tutankhamun's tomb. Yes. Gosh. Have you done any work on the Tutankhamun? I suppose in the pantheon of mummies, that tends to be the most famous one, I suppose. He is. Unfortunately, I was thwarted at getting quite close to being part of a team that was doing DNA. Yeah. But someone else is, so that's very good. Have you ever found a mummy, by the way? Have you ever kind of gone into a tomb and lo and behold, there's a, oh, yes. a cache of mummies? We have excavated lots of mummies and come up with them. And uh, also, I've been lucky enough to go into a tomb that had not been disturbed for the first time in Sudan. And you, when I opened up, this, they did not have mummies. They were naturally preserved. But we could still smell the incense from the funeral, which was over, you know, two and a half thousand years ago. That is amazing. You know, what makes me happy is the fact that it works, mummification. Yeah. You know, if you want to survive death and live into thousands of years, you can do it. And the fact that they're in museums and the fact that here we are making programs about it and talking about it and fascinated by it is sort of testament to that. 
Let me, I just one thing we talked about at the beginning as well, I just want to sort of end with is this idea of the part of our fascination culturally with, with mummification is this idea of the mummy's curse. Where did that come from? Is it just the strangeness, that sort of eeriness of mummification that created that idea of curses and people buying mummies in the 19th century and grinding them up into powder and it becoming a, a sort of superstitious medicine? I think so, perhaps. But I mean, when even for the Arabs, they would have the idea of the curse, the Lanat al-Faraon the curse of the pharaohs quite early on because there were these beliefs that if you meddled too much, ill fortune could come mm-hmm. because if you mess with the dead, something bad's bound to happen. Though that never stopped tomb robbers from any millennium. No. But the current sort of craze for the curse of the pharaohs is, of course, romantic novels and also more recently, Tutankhamun's tomb because when the journalists couldn't get first-hand information from Carter, they decided to just make up stuff. So (laughs) false news is an old tradition. (laughs) There you go. Fake news as ever. So there was this sort of mummy, you know, I think in sort of salons across London in the 19th century, mummies were sort of gripped their public attention. And they still do. I mean, I mentioned Scooby-Doo at the beginning, that idea of creepy mummies and bandages wandering around still holds great appeal. I've been lucky because I've spent some time in Egypt and made programmes about mummies. So I, I understand exactly what you're saying. The other thing I was thinking from a scientific point of view is that sadly for the embalmers, they never got a chance to really sort of check to see if their work actually works because it takes quite a long time to see whether someone's going to be preserved for X millennia. Yeah, absolutely. That's why I was thinking it would be nice if they had, you know, some workshops that they could try different recipes on. Yeah. You know, and maybe maybe bits of humans or maybe animals or whatever, or bits of meat, just to see what happens. Yeah. Pemmican or biltong is basically, or dried fish, is really what a mummy is. Yeah. In terms of science now, and in terms of archaeology, is science starting to tell us a lot more about the process of mummification? Are we, you know, is that an area of research that's going on? Absolutely. I mean, right now, in fact, I, I said I'm working with a group of people, mainly at the British Museum, and we are trying to refine our knowledge of the black goo that gives mummies their name and to see how many different recipes we can come up with and how they change over time, and if we can even do something about social class yes. based upon these recipes. Oh, that's fascinating. And where are we with that project? When do we get some information about that? We're at the baby stages. We're still okay. collecting materials to test. But, I mean, there have been other people have tested mummies. And it's quite interesting to see how, even in the past 10 years, the scientific technology has changed so that Elements that we missed earlier on are now showing up when we go back and look at the same samples, but we use different kinds of tests on them. Yeah. So we think that we might have been missing the bitumen that we thought, ah, this was made up. And now we think, oh, maybe there was bitumen being used. That's fascinating. I love when technology starts to improve on history. So the fact that we can now sort of do DNA analysis on mummies or, or sort of you know spectroscopy on mummy material to understand what it is, it's absolutely riveting. I'm I hopefully I'll get to do a little bit more of this because it's really, really interesting. Salima, we've run out of time, but I just want to say listen, thank you so much for joining us from your dodgy Wi-Fi connection in Napoli. <laughs> well, thank you, and it's lovely to see you again, <laughs> I have to say. Yeah, it really, really is. And listen, thank you for joining and telling us all about the invention of mummies and the technology behind mummification. I'm off to stick a spike up my nose now. Goody. <laughs> no, I won't do that. I won't do that. Thank you. Thank you. 
Okay, that's it. Thank you very much for joining me for this episode. I'm going to be back every Wednesday and Sunday, and I would love your company as ever. We've got new episodes about all kinds of different things, all kinds of fascinating subjects, interesting ideas, interesting topics, which I think are interesting, and I think you'll find them interesting too. So make sure you join me. Also, don't forget, if you've got an idea or a story or a subject you'd like me to cover, get in touch and we will stick them on the list. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. While I still have you, very briefly, if you fancy getting all of the History Hit podcast archive and new episodes ad-free, along with hundreds of history documentaries to watch, download our app across Apple App Store, Google Play, and smart TV platforms. Follow the link in the show notes or go to historyhit.com slash subscribe. There is thousands of hours of history on there, including a documentary on science in the Middle Ages with Seb Falk, and also one with me talking about the secret history of the space race. As a patented listener, you get a special gift if you use the code patented at the checkout. You get 50% off your first three months. That's patented for 50% off your first three months. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free podcast episodes within the Apple app.